Faith Rockburn has lived with mental illness most of her life, from anorexia as a teenager to severe depression as an adult. Her depression and anxiety got worse as she got older until she stopped going out of her house and she eventually lost her job. Faith's road to recovery has been long and difficult. Antidepressants didn't work. And after trying electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, she was told there was nothing left to try but group therapy. She finally did find an effective medication, but she says the biggest change came after she joined a peer support group. Faith is on the show today to tell her compelling story of mental illness, but she's also now a peer support worker at a Toronto hospital, and we'll be back next week to talk about what that means to her personally and to the people she works with. Hi, Faith. How are you today? I'm good, Janice. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for coming on and talking about your story. I know for a lot of people, it's very, very difficult to talk about uh, their mental illness or their experiences with substance use because of the shame that uh, that many people still feel. And I think it's getting better, but many people still feel that. So you talking about your story is so important. Um in, in so many ways. And so we're just going to start there. And I'm going to just let you talk about what has happened to you through your life. You feel in hindsight that you've probably been dealing with a, a depression, anxiety situation since you were younger. So can you tell me a little bit about your childhood and what happened to you at that stage of your life? Um, okay, so I grew up in a an affluent area of Toronto in a, in a, a great home. And, but I remember as far back as I can remember, I remember feeling extremely anxious and some days waking up and feeling extremely sad for no reason that I could think of. And so it just, I was always felt different from other, other children. I liked to be with them sometimes, but I needed a lot of time to be by myself. Um, and I just remembered understanding that other little girls didn't feel this way and other little boys didn't feel this way, but I did all the time. And, but I dealt with it in ways that I could find and it wasn't as severe, but then it got more severe as I grew. And when I was a teenager, about 16, I developed anorexia. Um, and so that was sort of the first big sign that something was really wrong. And in those days, anorexia was seen as a behavior uh, issue, not a mental illness. So I went through a lot. My parents were very angry with me. Um, I was not taken for treatment. And eventually, luckily, I just started eating again. Um, I was very lucky and, but I got down to in the 80 pound range, I'm five foot six. And still, even though I went to private school, no teacher that people were just watching this child um, fade away into nothing. And all they did was get mad because I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do, but nobody was asking why. They probably just thought you were being belligerent, a belligerent teenager. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was treated that way. And and so there was so many really hard scenes at home um, because my parents didn't understand and it wasn't really understood in those days. 
um, in as a mental illness. So as I say, luckily from that, I recovered. Um, but then um, I think, so, so the first big crack in my mental illness had shown and it hadn't been dealt with. So I just stuffed everything down and kept going and going. And um, I lost a child and I stuffed that down. And I then lost within a very short period of time, my mom, my dad, and my best friend within say two and a half years. And at that point I cracked, I had a breakdown and I couldn't get out of bed. And how old were you at this point? So I was of a, I was in my late forties at that point. And I had a great career at one of Canada's big five banks. I was a director of operations. Um, and overnight, I think what people don't realize is overnight, poof, that can all be gone as it was with me. And actually, because I had a mental illness and the company knew about it, um, within a month of my going on short-term disability, they sent all my personal belongings to my home. In other words, you're not coming back. Do you think and it would have been different? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but do you think that no, no. that would have been different if you had been on a uh, long-term disability or any kind of disability with a medical issue as opposed to not that I mean mental health is obviously a medical issue but at the right. time if there was businesses were not recognizing it at all mm -hmm. do you think that if you had had some sort of another type of illness they would have sent all your stuff home after a month no uh, there would have been balloons and cards and um, you know flowers and all that get well soon when we need you back um, because I'd seen that with other employees, but with me, it just, I mean, people, I worked in a department of 80 people. Many of them had been to my home. Many of them had been to my wedding, which had taken place shortly before. And most of them didn't want to have anything more to do with me. Um, and I always say there are no flowers for the mentally ill. So that's the big, if it would have been totally different if I'd broken my leg or if I'd had cancer, God forbid, but um, it would have been totally different because there's no stigma attached to that. But there's always the stigma that it's your fault that you're now can't, not coming into work just because you've decided you, that, uh, you know, depressed or whatever. Uh, there's a huge difference. And I, I believe that there still is. Yeah, it's a, well, it's so many people think you're just being lazy. I mean, I had I had kind of a similar experience um, that uh, I was just so sore, sort of. So um, I have manic depression. I'm bipolar. So there were a lot of ups and downs. So especially as a teenager, it was hard to recognize for me because mm -hmm. it seemed so hormonal. I know. Oh, yeah. Well, that's just the way a teenage girl is. And it's not that my parents, I think my parents would have been, um, really helpful, but they didn't understand either. They yeah. didn't see what was going on, but I ended up finally kind of underneath my desk at work and a friend came to get me because the anxiety level was so high. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't tell people, I didn't tell anybody why I was leaving. It, well, and, for that and very you know reason. It, 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 when I look back at it, of my behavior bef just before I had a nervous breakdown or maybe six months before, my behaviors changed. I didn't want to go into work. 
I was vomiting at the idea of leaving the house. And so, um, and when I went into work, I would have drinks at lunch because I couldn't cope. So I was self-medicating. And the terrible thing is nobody sat down with me. My boss never sat down with me and said, what's going on? You know, I've noticed these things. What they did was, you know, you're a bad person and you're doing, so nobody asked why a, a really good employee of 10 years all of a sudden would be doing these behaviors and it was always it was criticism not how do we understand how do we help you and i hope that it would be different now but i don't know you know it but it's shocking to me so if you look at it you know people are watching this child shrink down into nothing then people are watching um a very competent employee uh, they do all these things to of avoidance and nobody says what's going on with you how can we help you yeah it's it's sort of stunning it's not actually really surprising from say your supervisor or your your you know, the upper level management but that your friends would see you that way and people that you had known for mm -hmm. so long and and you had respected them and you they had respected you um that that would just all go away all yeah. of a sudden it's, it's, do you think it was because people are taking the business element out of it with your friends do you think that they were just afraid and they they didn't know what to do so the easiest thing to do was to just withdraw and, and you know move away from you and eliminate you from their social circle um i, I think that some people i mean I didn't realize what I was doing. Okay. I, I, you know, when I look back at it now, I thought I was still until I couldn't get out of bed one morning with a breakdown. Still, I thought you're fantastic. You know, you're the cat's ass. You've got the world by the tail. You've got a great husband. You've got a great job. You bought a house on your own, blah, blah. And so I didn't have this sense that and I probably, I don't know what I gave off, but I probably didn't give off, you know, a vibe that people wanted to set. And, and it's not a discussion that anybody wants to have. It's a yeah. discussion that, because when I tell people, when people ask me my, my advice about their friends or their family, um, when I go out as an advocate in the community, um, and I say, well, it's about having a discussion, you know, opening a discussion and they don't, and everybody's terrified to do that. Uh, and it is a hard discussion, but it's a discussion that we need to, and, you know, just because something is hard doesn't mean that it's not, it, that usually means it's worth doing. So in this case, it could be saving somebody's life because you're having that discussion. And I always say to people, the fact is maybe they're not going to go, oh, yeah, I should get help right away because you brought this up. That's highly unlikely. But they will think somebody cares enough to not criticize me, but to ask me what's going on? You know, how are you doing? You know, how are you really feeling? I mean, why wouldn't you ask that of someone who dealt with three deaths? And, you know, that's pretty traumatic within, within a very short period of time. How would people be expected to cope with that? Well, and exactly. Without any kind of help or support. It's just, and, and I mean, I got three days off work 
for the whole grieving thing. Wow. And, and then you're expected to be back and bright eyed and bushy tailed and back at the, you know, looking at the pie charts and everything um, right away. And so, but that's just not how grief works. And with multiple losses, why wouldn't I, people need support from people, obviously, but it's the conversation that nobody wants to have. And we have to learn how to have that conversation because it's things like, you know, suicide is the second leading cause of death of youth, Canadian youth 10 to 24. Um, is that worth not having a conversation about? Is that the yeah. price that we're willing to pay? Yeah. That our children are not comfortable enough to come to us? Is that how, how we deal with uncomfortable conversations is to avoid them? No, we have to learn how to have them. Well, and suicide probably has the greatest stigma of mm -hmm. anything. And mm -hmm. for the the family uh, yeah. who are dealing with things like, I don't understand what happened. How did I not recognize this? Um, mm. Why, you know, I'm I'm a terrible parent. I'm the cause for this happening. And I don't want anybody to know about it. But it's, but at some level, it's the same. It doesn't matter what the mental illness is. But you're also hard on yourself. So when you couldn't get out of bed that first day, how much of that did you just blame on yourself? And, and a lot of it, because that's what people were saying, oh, Faith's just lazy. She just doesn't want to do it anymore. I blame the, the whole thing on, on myself because that's what depression does. So depression... Unfortunately, with so many mental illnesses, they're not saying to you, they're not speaking to you and going, hey, you're great. Hey, you're this with especially with depression, um, anything that like that, where you could possibly be judged is going to you're going to judge yourself. So I blamed myself. Um, the company was very hard on me. They immediately set me up with a specialist to, uh, because they wanted to prove that I wasn't disabled. Oh, and not so, not so they could help you, but so that no. they could get a report back from a doctor saying, yeah, faith is faking. Exactly. Exactly. But I'm guessing that's not what the doctor said. No, no. And, and, and it was terrible because, well, I was sitting there with this doctor who was actually very nice. And I said, what is going on with me? I don't understand. Well, why do I? And he said, it's okay. You have depression and anxiety, but there's medication you can take for that. So it's going to be okay. But finally somebody validated that I, he said, and it's really bad too. It's major. And, you know, I don't really know how you've been dealing with all this, all this time, but it was so gratifying to me that I had a diagnosis. I was disabled. It wasn't my fault or my imagination. Um, the company couldn't criticize me at, for the moment, at least. And um, I'm thankful that actually they did that because of the waiting time that I had to get to see a psychiatrist. So they probably would have made me come back to work without that evidence. And I wouldn't have been able to cope. And so they probably would have fired me. And yeah. so. And then was, you have no financial support, which, yeah. which then, of course, then snowballs into a greater depression and a greater level uh, of anxiety. 
you got in, gotcha. you, so you started seeing a doctor and you got medical care, but let's talk about the treatment resistant type of depression that you had. Cause if we go that somewhere between 20 and 25% of Canadians are living with some type of mental illness. And then if you just take the depression side of that, and I think, what is it? 30% of people with who present with depression are treatment mm-hmm. resistant. So explain to me what treatment resistant means. That's, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And don't forget, as you know, there's an awful lot of people who have not been diagnosed. Right. Yes. So that number would go up exponentially um, if everybody had the opportunity or the will to be diagnosed. So what it means to, to me, um, when they tried me on an antidepressant that based on my symptoms should have done the trick, um, it made me very ill. It didn't do anything for the depression except make it worse because I felt so terrible. And that was the beginning of basically four years of that um, type of tri- uh, tri- type of the attempts to find a drug that I could take. And I was tried on every spectrum of antidepressants, every possible type. Some of them I almost died from, uh, one I almost had a stroke. And then finally after four, and some of them just didn't do anything. But people don't understand. They think it's like, if a doctor tries an antibiotic on you and it doesn't work, well, they can try another one with mental illness, uh, with antidepressants and other uh, psychiatric medications. You cannot cease them suddenly. You have to be weaned off them. You then have this sort of drain period where you do not do any, and then you have to be started on another. So this can take months Um, just to cycle from one drug to another because they can't be stopped and started um, without you probably dying. So four years of that was pretty horrendous. And then at the end of it, my doctor said, no, I've run out of drugs now. Um, There's nothing left but ECT. So electroconvulsive therapy, also known as shock treatment. Shock therapy, yeah. Yeah. Popularly known as thought popularly isn't a great word for it, but yeah. So, um, ECT. So I then did 10 sessions of ECT and that was reported to be a failure, um, because it was, but what it did do was remove my short-term and a lot of my long-term memory. So I got the depression still left me with my depression, but it robbed me of short and long-term memory. So that was the end of that. And then I started really heavily self-medicating with alcohol because everything had been tried and nothing could work. And I was still sitting there suicidally depressed. And I eventually, I'm proud of myself for this because I kept in my own weakened state, persevering and asking questions and begging for help until finally I was referred to a wonderful doctor at Toronto Western who's doing trials of ketamine for treatment of depression. And that turned out to be um, my savior. That is the one thing I can take. I've taken it for years now. And um, that's something that 
they was discovered actually during the Gulf War. The one good thing that came out of the Gulf War um, was that ketamine, when it was used for roadside amputations as an anesthetic, um, created a euphoric feeling in many of the soldiers. Um, so that's what's worked for me. And, um, but it was not, you know, what's terrible is that it was not people going, hey, she's treatment resistant. So now we've got to try X, Y, Z, because we need this different pathway for this person. It was the patient having to rattle cages and do everything on their own. Um, and that's, I'm one person, but a lot of people would have just given up. And yes. a lot of people yes. end up dead because they can't handle it. And I have no judgment whatsoever on yeah. how people. Yeah. Well, uh, they don't choose. know. They can't advocate for themselves and they don't exactly. have someone to advocate for them. I and mean, I was so fortunate because I had a family um, who were, you know, my my mom and my dad, especially and my sister-in-law were so behind me all the time to rattle those cages for me. Right. Now, one of the yeah. other things that was also really um, became large in your recovery, and you now work as a peer support worker, was but you got into some uh, level of group therapy. So you met other people. I did. That was my actually my big breakthrough was that, again, I was begging my doctor, what do I do? What do I do? And he said, well, you know what? You've never tried. You've never tried group therapy. And I went, Ugh, uh, I don't want to listen to other people. I've got enough problems of my own. <laughs> you haven't noticed I'm kind of down um so I don't really want to listen to it but anyway I thought you've got to do this you have you cannot say anything until you try it and I made my way I'll never forget the day I crossed my front door because I rarely left the home at that point rarely and I crossed the front door and it was kind of like crossing the Atlantic Ocean um and I made my way to Cam H and I was with this teeny little group. There were four of us. And that was my breakthrough because I realized as soon as I sat down, I thought, these are my people. These people understand me. And I don't have to pretend in front of them. I don't have to be anybody different than who I am. And they don't just see me as my illness. And I think group therapy, something that I poo-pooed for so long, that was what I absolutely needed was that community and the ability to share my feelings without judgment um, and to empathize with other people who had way worse problems than I did. And that's the other thing about group therapy is the relativity. You know, one guy was getting divorced and, you know, he didn't know if he would have any money or where he was going to live. And it helps you go, wow, I'm not you know, the worst off in the world. I think I am, but I'm not. So it got me into a very different pattern uh, of thinking. But I think mental illness, especially untreated as mine had to be, makes you selfish because you want you you have to protect yourself first before you're going to do anything else. And so because you're so vulnerable. And so that was the biggest breakthrough for me and led me to, into becoming better enough to become a peer support, which is a huge part of my therapy is helping other people who are, I've been there, 
and especially when they're acute in the hospital, um, it's, you know, I wish I'd had somebody like me when I was yeah. in the hospital. 